So I know you're probably familiar with long introductions, right? Well, the passage that we read today, believe it or not, almost four whole chapters in the book of 1 Corinthians is Paul's introduction. It's all it is. And he said a lot in his introduction. The way we know that is there's a, uh, there's a language structure. I'm just going to show this to you and then move on. For those that are interested, and it is that there's brackets, and he bracketed his introduction. So if you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 1, verse number 10, I'll show you the brackets. The bracket is uh, the word that we would commonly translate exhort. So if you look at chapter 1, verse number 10, the meat of his introduction is this, I appeal, and that word appeal is a word commonly translated exhort. I exhort to you brothers, or I appeal to you brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus, that if all of you agree, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So there's the first part of his introduction. Now go to chapter number 4 and verse number 16, and you'll see the basic, the end of his introduction. It's in the last sentence, even though it's another verse. He says, I urge, and there's that word exhort again, I exhort you, then be imitators of me. So we've been going through 1 Corinthians, and we're four chapters in, and um, his whole introduction about divisions in the church can be summed up in this one little phrase. You ready? Be imitators of me. Imitate me. That's what Paul is telling them in four chapters. You're thinking to yourself, well, why didn't he just cut to the chase and say, you know, quit being divisive and imitate me? It just doesn't work that way. Aren't you glad I'm not that wordy? You're supposed to all just say yes and, uh, and move on. But, uh, but for almost four chapters, he's been telling them how to think. He's been talking about worldly wisdom and spiritual wisdom and, and, and how to think about both of those things and how to apply them and all that sort of thing. And right thinking about a matter is just not enough. The gospel of, of Jesus Christ is, must not only result in right thinking, but it must result in right behavior as well. Right thinking must be accompanied by right behavior. Now, have you ever met somebody who's all thought and no action? You know, they, they live in the hallowed halls of, of ideas and stuff and nothing ever happens. Some of you might be saying, yeah, I need to look in the mirror or something like that. But, uh, but I, I doubt that there's a person in this room who does not think that exercise is good. I don't think there's a person in this room who would deny that eating vegetables is good. How about this one? Changing the batteries in the smoke detector. I was a fire chief, so, so I know all about that one. Change your smoke detector batteries, right? But in all honesty, it's a whole other thing to actually follow through with what you think, isn't it? And, and that's the Corinthians here. He's, he's telling the Corinthians how to think. And now he says, but your behavior needs to be the same as well. Paul is teaching them spiritual truth through the use of metaphors. Think about how many metaphors we've seen already in these four chapters. He has already considered himself a servant. He has called himself a slave, a farmer, 
a steward, a master builder. And so, and we've, we've unpacked all these metaphors and what, what is he trying to get at? And now he's going to use one more to, to finish out his, his introduction. And that is the metaphor of a father. The last metaphor used is, is to show the Corinthians what discipleship looks like. You understand what discipleship is? Jesus had disciples. He called 12 disciples, and he called people to discipleship. And over three and a half years of his ministry, he had 12 disciples. Ends up he had a few more than that um, that I won't get into right now that uh, were more peripheral than, than the original 12. And he summed up and gave a command to the, to, the, to the disciples when he left this earth as he's getting ready to rise up into heaven, Matthew 28, he said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And so what we find from his command is that our job as believers is to make disciples. That, that's our job. That's, that's what God has called us to do. Now, Paul he doesn't use the term discipleship. He, he, he talks about it in a different way, and I'm going to get into that in just a minute. But Paul, in this passage, is giving uh, instruction on discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to disciple? And it's not the plan to be exhaustive. He's just kind of walking through it. And so let's just look at the elements of discipleship that we see from what we read today. Verse number 14, the first element of discipleship is love. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Beloved children. And so he loves them as children is, is the first thing that we see. The, the, um, there's a common statement that the origins, there's a lot of argument about the origins. Uh, I researched a little bit this week, and the furthest back I could find the statement was with Teddy Roosevelt. And everybody knows this statement. It, he said this, people don't care how much you know until you know they... See, everybody knows that phrase, right? People don't... Care how much you know until they know you care. And that's true when it comes to the matter of discipleship. When someone you love and someone who loves you comes to you to talk to you about a serious matter, you are going to listen to them because you know that that person loves you. This is the case with Paul and the Corinthian church. He loved this church. He, he views this assembly with affection, and they had affection for him. And so here's this church that he birthed. He came into Corinth. A lot of these people he led to the Lord, and now he hears that this church is having division. And so he needs to say some hard words, some tough words to them, not mean words. He didn't do it to embarrass them, but he needs to talk to them about a serious matter. He's not trying to bring them shame, not trying to browbeat, not trying to crush their spirit. He's doing this because of love. He, he says that he loves them again in, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 11. He says, and why? Because I do not love you? No, God knows I do. Now, we understand that when you love somebody, you can say things to them that you can't say to anybody else. Have you ever been like maybe eating a meal with somebody that you didn't really know and they had like some food on their face? You know, and it's just bothering you and you're watching them eat and it's just, just hanging there, moving while they're masticating their food. Now, 
some, some, now this is our Western culture. You know, there's some cultures they would probably reach to somebody they didn't know and wipe it off their face. But I got a question for you. If you didn't know this person, you just met them and you're talking to them, they got food on their face. How many would say something to them? Okay. All right. How many say there's no way I'd say anything to them? It's too much fun. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Well, let me ask a different question. What if it was your spouse and they had something? Most of you, how many would say something? Big difference, isn't there? Uh, actually, probably the roles would be, well, if it's my spouse, I'm going to take a video and it's going to go on social media. But, uh, but you, you, know, <clears throat> you know what I'm talking about here. When you, when you love someone, you can say things that maybe are a little bit awkward. When you love your children... And you, you get to know what, what they like and what they enjoy. You know their strengths and you know their weaknesses and, and their hopes and their joys and their dreams and their fears. And, and you take all these things and together so that you know how to show your love to them. And when you disciple spiritual children, you strive to understand them as well. And you want to see them grow spiritually. And you strive to give them everything they need to grow in Christ. And, there, and there's no way that you can be in Christ and not love of other Christians. That is the primary way that we're to relate to other Christians. Did you know that? Primary way. In um, 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, John said this. He said, we love because he first loved us. In um, John 5, 15, 12, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And so the, the, the big way, the, the, the big envelope in which we relate to other believers in our assembly is that of love. Ephesians 3.17, Paul prays, well actually um, is uncanny, Ted read it today and I had it right here in my sermon. 3.17, he says that they will be rooted and grounded in love. And so this, this discipleship relationship is motivated by love. Now, there's going to be people that we feel more affection for than others, but we are to love everybody in the assembly. That's, that's the kind of relationship that we are called to. The second element of discipleship is, is warning. Look at verse number 14 again. Do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you. If you love someone, you want to keep them from harm, Right? Uh, you do. And so you admonish them. That word admonish means to warn. When a, when a little child, you, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When a little child reaches up to the top of the stove, you always warn them, don't you? You admonish them, don't touch the stove. Why do you do that? Because eventually there might be a time where they reach up to the top to touch the top of the stove and it's, it's going to be hot and they're going to harm themselves and you don't want them to, to harm themselves. And of course, if they keep doing it, the, the warnings have to get stronger. And you're not doing that because you're just a mean old parent uh, or anything like that. They may think that you are. You are doing that because you love them and you don't want them to hurt themselves. Likewise, when they get older, when they're teenagers and they start heading down a path that you think is, is could lead to some harm to them or, or a destructive path, you warn them, this is not the way to go. I'm doing this because I love you. I don't want you to end up like 
maybe I did or whatever else or, or have this problem that I have. And so you, you warn them and you do it because of love. In the New Testament, that word admonish means to counsel someone to avoid improper conduct. You love them. So you, you don't um, embrace them or cause them shame, but rather you point out the weakness or a problem and you warn them and help correct the behavior. And you say, well, yeah, you, you know what, though? That's the Apostle Paul. You know, Paul was able to say anything to anybody. When, I know there's people in this church that are like that. They can say anything to anybody. Nobody gets offended. You know those kind of people? I, I can, I've never been able to do that. I remember Patty, Patty from uh, last church. She was an elderly lady in our church, and she could say anything. The most offensive thing in the world, and everybody would never take offense. And, and I remember one time we were over at her house, and, and her husband Clarence had just passed away, and she's, she's reminiscing, and, and she could say anything, and you'd almost laugh at it. And she said, I remember when, when Clarence uh, uh, um, retired, and, and uh, he was home all the time. She said, it was horrible, you know. And, and she could just say anything she wanted and not be offended. And, and most, of us, uh, most of us are not that way. But the Apostle Paul, you might say, well, yeah, but this is the Apostle Paul admonishing. Actually, the New Testament teaches us that it's everybody's job to admonish people. Everybody's job is, is to admonish one another. Let me, let me show you what I'm talking about. Uh, Paul wrote to the fledgling church in Thessalonica, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Warn the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. So, so warning is just a small part of the way that we, we should talk to one another. He didn't say elders. He didn't say apostles. He said brothers. To the church in Colossae, he said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing or warning one another in all wisdom. And so that's, that's the job of the people in church. And finally, he said to the church in Rome, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to instruct one another. That word instruct is actually the word admonish or to warn one another. And so this is something that we're to do with all Christians. We are to warn. Now, isn't that quite opposite our Western culture. It is completely foreign to our Western culture. Matter of fact, our culture is rapidly moving to the type of culture where if you disagree with somebody, you hate them. Isn't it? That, that's the way they're, they're trying to frame it. Now, And I, I'm going to say this. Please take it with a grain of salt. But I believe that this cultural move is, is kind of even a satanic thing because how can you how 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 can you talk to somebody if you can't disagree with them right if if it gets framed that way people are going to be afraid to to help one another out by warning them and it's just it's just going to create a problem but anyway in the west where we live <coughs> Um, we are so far removed from a sense of community uh, conveyed in the verses. Think about what we've read. Love one another. Speak warning words and, and encourage one another. We are so far removed from that. We believe in the individual. We, we live further apart from each other than we ever have. We, we have that luxury. We don't walk home from work for the most part. We drive our cars, and when we pull in our driveway, we hit the remote control. The door goes up to our castle. We drive in. We hit the remote control. The door comes down, and guess what? Whew, we made it through, and we didn't have to talk to our neighbors. That, that's our culture, isn't it? 
That's the culture in which we live. We, we believe in rugged individualism. We don't live in a shame-honor culture where your behavior reflects positively or negatively upon your family or community. Rather, when your behavior is, is what some people would call inappropriate, you celebrate that as this is my freedom. I, I'm free to do this. We, we have the, the, the community at large is not as important to, to our ideals. But that's not the desire that Jesus had for his church at all. Take your Bibles and turn to John 17. John 17, I want to show you, this is, this is the night of his betrayal. This is in the upper room um, after, the, after the Last Supper. And he's praying on, on probably on the roof of the upper room on John 17, verse number 20. And look at what Jesus prays for the church, the future church. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for the, those who will believe in me through their word. Would that be you and me? It is, right? What is he asking? That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And what's the result? So that the world may believe that you sent me. Our love for one another is, it, it aids our evangelism. That's what he's saying. Let's keep reading. That the glory that you have given me, I have given them. Now look at this that they may be one even as we are one. How close, how one is the Trinity? Complete unity, isn't there? I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Again, here it is, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. In, in Ephesians chapter 3 that, that Ted was reading um, from, and he was talking about love, just prior to that in chapter number 2, Paul says that the gospel of Jesus Christ breaks down all barriers, whether all religious barriers, all racial barriers, all ethnic barriers, so that we can become one. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter um, your gender. It does not matter uh, your ethnicity, your, your, the country of your origin. When the gospel comes in, there is a unity that ensues because we, our goal is to love one another as God the Father loved the Son and the Son loved the Father and the Holy Spirit, all three in one. That's the kind of unity that we are to have. Would to God that we have that kind of unity, right? And you know what? The goal of this closeness would resemble the, the tightness of a familial bond. Love, love is something that you choose. To be Christ-like means that you choose to love others. Christ-likeness and love are, are, are one and the same. You choose to put yourself out in order to show others love that are in your church community. Christ said that whoever would follow him would take 
up his cross and follow him. And part of choosing to obey Christ is by putting yourself behind and put others in the church first. And when the church sees, or when the people see, look at that church, there's diverse, there's even Republicans and Democrats in the same church. And when they see the kind of unity that we can have and the love that we have for one another, they'll know that Jesus Christ is in their midst. Would to God that we have that kind of assembly. Amen? That's the kind of assembly that I would love to be the pastor of. I'm not saying we're not. I'm just saying that's a dream, right? And the beauty is that when the church cultivates that kind of love, then people are free to warn one another because they do love. Has no problem coming up and saying something like, you know, happy, happy you got a little bit, you know, right here. Can you take care of it? And he doesn't get offended, right? Uh, or, or whatever else. I can go to one of the elders and say, say you know what, Bo, I, I'm seeing this, and maybe, have you ever thought that maybe this is not Christ-like that you're doing? And he doesn't get offended because he realizes I love him, and I can go to other people, and you can go to people in the assembly. That is the goal, because we all have blind spots. We can't see where we're going astray. We can't see our biases. We need somebody else to help us in seeing those things. And if you love somebody, you're not afraid of having a difficult conversation because you know it's going, it might be not well received at first, but when they realize your love, they're going to come back and they're going to thank you for it. And they're going to change. And we all need that. I need that. Did you know that? And, and I'm telling you this, if you see something in my life, please come to me. I mean that. Don't write me an email, okay? <laughs> come to me and, and talk to me. Don't go to happy about me. Come to me. I need to hear it. Seriously, I, I do. Um, I get plenty of emails, though, so just to let you know. <laughs> and I know I mentioned this a lot. And I mentioned this a lot because it's a huge problem in our culture today. To make yourself part of a close-knit community is to become vulnerable and accountable, and it's completely countercultural. To put yourself in the place where you will listen to the warning of a fellow believer is opposite of our culture. We expect that you will get plugged into this community. Adult Bible fellowships, life groups, prayer groups, etc., it can only benefit you. And two of the benefits are that, number one, you are loved. And number two, that you will be warned and encouraged and all these sorts of things. And, but you have to get involved. And I'm not picking on anybody. I, I get emails every time I say something like this. And I promise you, I literally don't know people's status. I, I have a file that gives people status. But I just want to say this. If you've been attending for a long time, you are the one that gets plugged into the church. We can't plug you in. It's your choice. I can't go to somebody and say, drag them over here and say, you know what? You look like you make a great decorator. Come on, you're going to start decorating the church. Okay, but you can get involved in that. You can get involved in the nursery. And when we do ministry together, and when we pray together outside of the worship service, and when we're involved in community life groups and adult Bible fellowships, you, you avail yourself of that opportunity. Christ expects you to be busy in his church, and we do too expect you to be busy in the church, uh, helping one another and, and, and loving one another. Would you decide that you love God so 
so much that you will choose to love his church and use your gifts to serve his church and you will decide to love God so much that you're willing to warn them that they need to change the course of of life and be correct. Let me give you a third uh, characteristic of discipleship, reproduction. Now, Paul is not giving these in, in chronological order because really reproduction is first, isn't it? Look at verse number 15. What does he say? He says, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Paul is, is, um, is saying that discipleship is a process of moving somebody from lost to saved to growing in Christ. And, and as natural, as in natural fatherhood, reproduction must occur before there can be love or admonition. A child must be born before he can be cared for and before he can be trained. Now, verse number 15 takes a little bit of explanation. I want to do that real fast and explain a little bit of the text for you. Ready? Notice what he says. He says, though you have countless guides in Christ. Now, the word countless is a, is a word that means 10,000. Some of your translations probably say that, 10,000 guides. It's a common idiom that means countless. That's all it means. It means so many that you can't count them. Though you have countless guides in Christ, um, that word guide needs a little bit of explanation. What is a guide? What is a guide? That word translated guide means a guardian of boys, and it's a cultural term. Let me explain it. The, the Greeks and the Romans used trustworthy slaves who were charged with the duty of supervising the life and the morals and the education of the boys who belonged in the upper class. And so this word guide, don't think of like, you know, I, I took a guided tour of Israel or something like that. Think of somebody who's a steward of somebody's child. And, and they are, they, this is a slave charged, you take my boy from a toddler to a man and you train him in everything that he needs to know in order to grow up to be a man in society. That's that kind of a word. The boys were not allowed sometimes so much as a step out of the house without having that guide with them until they reached the, uh, the age of manhood. And while these tutors are helpful, Paul says that he is much more than a guide. He is their spiritual father. His mission was to take the gospel to places where it had never been, and therefore he was a spiritual father to many in the church. Now, I want to give you something profound. You ready? This is very profound. You cannot be a father unless you have children. Everybody knows that, right? I'm saying this, and I'm going to say it another way, living creatures reproduce. Life begets life. I'm saying this because if you are alive in Christ, then God expects you to reproduce. Now we understand that God's the one that gives life, right? He, he's the one who regenerates but we're the ones who bring the word that people hear. How shall they hear without a messenger? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so in order for somebody, for you to reproduce yourself spiritually in somebody else's life, you have to be sharing the word with people that don't know it. Are you sharing the word? Now, one of, the, one of the greatest ways that you can be a discipler is in your own home. The greatest opportunity 
you have dad and mom of discipleship is with junior is with your daughter that's your greatest opportunity they see you when things are going well they see you when you've had a bad week they see you when in your joy and in your sorrow in your refreshment and in your tiredness they see what you consider important, what you really, really get excited about. And they see you in the, in the ways that you get unexcited about things. And the best way, well, actually, let me just say this. You are rep reproducing yourself. You know that? Uh, I remember when when our oldest child went into middle school. It was a private Christian school, and we they, all the middle school parents had to come to this big assembly. You remember that? And and they were teaching us, and they said, when your son or your daughter start saying and doing things that you do not approve of. Do not blame the school. <laughs> I thought that was really good advice. And it really headed off a lot for them, I'm sure. But discipleship is something that every parent is called to do. So, so whether or not you're doing it any other way, you have the golden opportunity to disciple right in the home. Dads, are you taking advantage of the opportunity you have to disciple your children? Moms, are you bringing the Word of God through not only instruction, but through the way you live your life to your, to your daughters and to your children? You have the opportunity to give the Word in reproduction. Let me give you one last characteristic discipleship imitation. Look at verses 16 and 17. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. It is said that imitation is the highest form of flattery, but it's also one of the greatest tools that Christians have to bring about godly change in, their, in, in people's lives. Think about it. Your children, the way they learn is they imitate you. Uh, we we use uh, one of the social media apps to talk to our kids, and so we get we get uh, video. You know, it's called uh, Marco Polo. And we we video our kids, and it's so much fun. I have two granddaughters who live in Alabama, and it's so much fun to watch the 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 two year old and her little sister because she acts just like her mother acts. She has watched her mother, and she knows how her mother talks to the baby. And guess what? She talks to the baby just the same way. Imitators. That's how children learn. They learn through imitation. Imitation is a means by which children learn all the basics of life, uh, the functions, including language. Children talk like their parents, act like their parents, have the desires of their parents. The, the phrase is, more is caught than taught. You've heard that, right? More is caught than taught. And as they say, we observe and then we follow. Well, discipleship is primarily done by imitation. Discipling isn't just teaching principles. It's not a classroom. We don't have a discipleship class. 
Rather, discipleship is living the principles of the Bible. And so in a disciple's life, and I'm going to get to this in just a minute, but I'm going to go ahead and say it now. There must be, first of all, instruction in the Word of God, and that happens in the worship service, in the adult Bible fellowships, in the Sunday school class. But there also must be the living out of the Word of God in people's lives and that imitation. And so when you have younger Christians with older Christians, they're working together, and so you do ministry together. You do meals together. You look at the book of Acts. How many times do you see them saying, and they broke bread together, and they fellowship together. They were spending their lives together. Paul would eat meals with people. Why? Because they, he wanted them to see his desires, his goals, his dreams, the way he acted and reacted. Paul took Timothy and, and others with him all through his ministry, they went everywhere with him because he wanted them to see the gospel lived out. Imitation. Let me ask you, dear Christian, are you in some sort of a relationship with another Christian where they can see your life and you can imitate, or they can imitate you? Churches come up with all kinds of sophisticated strategies for discipleship. When the simple New Testament model is imitation, Paul conveys this five times in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians and 1 Thessalonians. He says, imitate me. The author of Hebrews says, imitation. The apostle John taught the same thing in John 3.11. It's through the, old, the whole New Testament, all through it. The word that Jesus uses is discipleship. And they followed him everywhere. You remember that? Followed him everywhere. In the New Testament, the epistles, they use the word imitate. Imitate and follow. Imitate and follow. Imitate and follow. And so imitation is important. We can imitate Christ. We can have imitation in the home. We can have it in the church. When we're doing little projects here together, when we're meeting in Bible fellowships together, when we're grabbing coffee or a meal or coming over to people's houses, um, um, and, and it can go on and on. The only thing I ask is you're not like the pompous deacon who was um, teaching the little boy's Sunday school class. And he said, he asked these little boys, he looked at them and said, boys, how do people, why do people think I'm a Christian? And the boy sat there and thought for a minute. One boy raised his hand. He said, because they don't know you. And uh, don't be that kind of imitator, okay? Uh, be, be somebody who, who is will, uh, worthy of, of imitation. In the church, there need to be two things. Number one, formal teaching. And number two, imitation. Notice what Paul says in verse number 17. I'm going to close very quickly. Verse 17, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. How wonderful is that? A dad, dads that love their boys take them everywhere with them, don't they? Junior goes with him on Saturdays when he's running errands. Junior goes with him when he's out in the garage working or out in the, in the yard working or whatever he's doing. And, and uh, I remember when I was younger, I loved golf. Golf was everything. My two-year-old son would sit right beside me. He watched golf for an hour, maybe even hours. I'm ashamed to say I would spend that much time watching golf when I was younger. And then when he got a little bit older, I took him on the golf course. When he's five years old, I had some custom clubs. I took some old clubs and had them cut down. So he had a little um, pitching wedge that was about that long and a little driver is about that long, five years old. And I let him tee off. And then he'd pick up his ball. When we got to the green, I'd have him uh, throw it right next to the green. He'd chip up. And every now and then he looked at me and said, Dad, I beat you. <laughs> 
But imitation, and he, he loves golf, and the boys pick it up. Girls become like their mothers. That's what it is. And in the church, in the church, we should be able to say, look around and see how that we have been reproduced in the lives of other people. Would to God that we be that kind of a church, right? There's, I'm going to close with this. There's a documentary about uh, Ernest Shackelford. He's the, uh, the early 20th century uh, explorer who uh, went to the South Pole. And in a classified ad, Shackleton put this in the London newspaper. This is what the ad read. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success, Ernest Shackleton. They said men responded in droves to that advertisement. Why? Because the mission was clear. The cost and potential loss both drew the right men and made sure the wrong ones didn't sign up. God's mission similarly is not for the faint of heart. Will you today commit? I am going to be a discipler because that's how God's pleased. I'm willing to love. I'm willing to put others first and myself last. I'm willing to pour myself into somebody's life for the sake of the glory of the kingdom of God. Wouldn't it be great at the end of your life that you stand before the Lord and you're able to say, Lord, you called me to make disciples and I counted the cost and I brought some with me. Dear believer, count that cost. The reward for discipling others is eternal. Lord, we thank you for this short little passage that we were able to talk about in, in a lot of depth. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who was our example. Foxes had holes and birds had their nests, but the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. But Lord, he is now crowned in eternal glory. And the Bible says that when we faithfully follow you and we love your church, and we make disciples that one day we will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, and we will be crowned with eternal glory as well. Lord, impress upon our hearts the desire for discipleship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.